Heavenly Father, we believe this to be true. We've experienced it with our own lives. Those of us who have made a profession of faith and entered into a relationship with you know full well that apart from abiding in Christ, we can do no good kingdom work. We know, Lord, that we are saved into your kingdom to grow and that apart from Christ and abiding in Christ, who is our source, who is the vine, no growth will take place. And yet, Father, we have gathered here and we, we confess that we desire to grow. We desire to overcome the flesh and the world and even Satan himself that want to hold us stagnant in this spiritual place. I ask, Lord, that you would cause each and every one of us to abide daily in Christ, to dwell daily in Christ, that we would go to him in prayer, that we would seek his face through the word, that we would enjoy him and be nourished by him in the context of a community just like this, Lord, that we would exercise our gifts and talents for his glory, Lord. Cause us to abide in him. We as a church, Father, want to be a people who truly do bear much fruit and therefore we need to abide in Christ. I pray, Lord, for all of us who have deviated. I pray you would bring us back to the true source of all life and holiness, your very Son, Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen, amen. That's usually my cue to come up, so that's an interesting sound already being up here. All right, Acts chapter 11. If you are not there, please open your Bibles. If you do not have a Bible and would like one, uh, raise your hand and we will get you a Bible for today and for as long as you would like to keep it. Uh, Acts chapter 11, we're going to be finishing up this particular section in Acts and moving on to Acts 12 next week. And if you've been following along with us then, um, you'll be pretty excited about this next section. Some good things um, are going to happen yet again in this fantastic book. Um, Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 19. You can follow along with me. Dr. Luke writes, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we have your word to be read and to be proclaimed. 
I ask, Lord, that you would be gracious as we ask each week. Be gracious with me in the faithful proclamation of this word and be gracious with my brothers and sisters who have gathered here that they might receive it with all the power that comes in receiving your word through the Spirit. We, we don't want to be a people who leave here unchanged, Father. You save us into growth. And so grow us, even this hour, that we might be more as Christ is, transformed into His image. Father, we're so thankful that You do not leave us in our sin. You save us out of the darkness. You bring us into the kingdom. And then You give us Your Holy Spirit that we might day by day become more and more holy. I pray, Father, You would forgive each and every one of us for taking that lightly, for dismissing the power of Your Word and the Spirit to actually change us from the inside out. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that right now, um, that we would leave here very different people than when we came in. Um, We praise you, Lord, for this opportunity to hear the word and to be changed by it. Give us that expectation that we will be different for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. So if if you came in earlier today, it was raining really hard. Now, I imagine most of you, I know rain around here is like, oh, it's raining. It's like no one has any idea what that is. Um... But I don't think you got here, even if you were a little bit wet, thinking to yourself, I'm never going to dry off. No, you came in wet, you're going to leave likely dry. You would expect a transformation of some kind. I hope spiritually you came thinking, I'm going to be changed today. I'm not going to leave here the same than when I walked through those doors. And that should be our hope and prayer. That's what God desires, and that's what he enables us to do through his spirit and word. So if you don't have that expectation, I'm going to tell you to have it right now. Expect God to change you this hour permanently for his glory, all right? Can we set that expectation? Title the sermon is Spiritual Growth. What a shock. I know my, 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 my sermon titles are utterly profound, aren't they? I mean, they're so deep. All right, first chapter, Colossians chapter 1. This was Paul's prayer to the church in Colossae. He was praying that God would fill them, listen, with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And he asked this prayer, he prayed this prayer for this purpose, and this needs to be our purpose today, so that they may live lives worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God. Right? That's, you want a, a, a good thesis for spiritual growth? That's Paul's prayer for Colossae. That's my prayer for us today, that we will grow in the wisdom and knowledge of God today. In other words, God saves us to be a growing people. God expects his people in Christ to grow. And so staying the same, remaining stagnant, that's that's unhealthy. And if that's where you are right now, then ask God to forgive you and then today begin to grow. If year after year you see no change in your life, no trajectory in holiness and righteousness and love and mercy, then something's wrong. Either you're still engaged in willful, unrepentant sin and you need to confess that, or you don't know the Lord. And neither of those are good things. My beloved, you have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You've been forgiven of every single sin you've ever committed. You've been forgiven and given the righteousness of Christ. You've been called by God a son or daughter. Right? So there's all the reason that we have in Scripture to grow even this day in the holiness of God. It's, and it shouldn't be strange for us. If I, I'm not a gardener, but if I were to go and take a tree and plant it in my backyard and the soil was right for that type of tree and the water was right and the sun grew, I should expect at the end of that year that tree to have grown. And if it doesn't grow, then there's something wrong, right? 
I mean, many of us, we, we went away for four years to school. We spent a lot of money. And if you went to a good school and you spent four years and thousands of dollars, you should have an expectation coming out of there different than when you went in. And if you didn't, you probably wasted a lot of money. We should have that same expectation and infinitely more because we have the Word of God and we have the Holy Spirit and that's God's desire for you. God desires you to change, to become more and more as Christ is with each passing day. That's his desire for you. It should be our desire for this church, for one another. The psalmist writes, Psalm 92, listen to this. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. And so if you've been saved by grace, you've been brought into the house of God. This is where you've been planted. And therefore, there's a great expectation that you will flourish now that you know Christ and you have the Holy Spirit. And Dr. Luke's been recording that. Have we not seen that now in the previous ten and a half chapters? Dr. Luke has been talking about this incredible growth that's been taking place numerically and spiritually. Right, we saw, we saw about five years after Pentecost, Stephen is martyred, and then the, the Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem, they scatter. And as they scatter, they bring the gospel to the lost, and God takes that gospel, and he begins saving different people. First, we see Philip and the eunuch, and then he goes to Samaria, and, the, and God pours out the Holy Spirit on Samaria, and the church hears about it, and they send Peter, and they send John. And then we spent the last three weeks looking at the incredible story of Cornelius, and how God, through the gospel preached in Peter, saved Cornelius and all those Gentiles in that house that day in Caesarea. In other words, what we saw over the last few weeks is God opening up the gospel to people like us, to Gentiles like us. And so God, from the beginning of this, has been growing his church. And the church in Jerusalem, they finally got it. Look at verse 18. This was the end of Peter's testimony. Finally, God, that to the Gentiles also God had granted repentance that leads to life. And the church in Jerusalem, they glorified God for that. And they were excited about that, that God was growing his church, that the saints that were saved were growing spiritually, and the number of saints were growing numerically. And so what we see here is God takes now the gospel up into the Mediterranean world. What we're going to see is that there's an impact expected by God's people. When the gospel is preached and the Holy Spirit comes, God expects his people to grow. He expects us to grow. And so my prayer this morning is that, that it'll be Paul's prayer that is answered, that we will leave here today living lives worthy of the Lord, that we will become a people who bear much fruit, and that we will grow in the knowledge of God. I imagine if I asked you a, a question, if I asked you a rhetorical question, does anybody not want to grow? No one raised their hand. I mean, no, so I, of course you want to grow. We all want to grow. And so here's the incredible thing. You have that opportunity this moment, this hour, through this word and through the Holy Spirit. So you got to listen, all right? All right. Three things I want us to see, three ways the church grew in Antioch that should really encourage us. Number one, they grew in submission. Number two, they grew in the ministry. And number three, they grew in giving. So today you want to leave here saying, I'm going to grow in submission. I'm going to grow in the ministry and I'm going to grow in giving. Theme of the sermon would be this. Growing spiritually is normal for Christians. Growing spiritually is normal for Christians. Not growing is abnormal. All right, point number one. Growing in submission. Look at verse 19. 
Verse 19, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now, we, you notice what Luke's done here. He's going to kind of revert us back here a little bit in time to the persecution of Stephen a few years prior. And he's describing that movement. And, and we know the Jews, they spread out. We know they went to Judea and to Samaria, but this is the description of them going north. And they traveled north to Phoenicia. Phoenicia is about 200 miles north of Jerusalem, right on the Mediterranean coast. Beautiful beaches. I haven't been, but I've seen pictures. Cyprus, of course, you know Cyprus, the third largest island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's about 80 miles off the coast, so it was accessible and populated. And then they went as far north as Antioch. Antioch is 460 miles, 460 miles north of Jerusalem. Now, you're not getting in your car or jumping in an airplane to make that trip. It's a trip, right? It's a, it's a sojourn to make it that far. And so the gospel had gotten all the way up to Antioch. Now, if you know your church history, Antioch plays a significant role for the history of the church, certainly up through uh, the Middle Ages and into the Reformation. Antioch was the, the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time, about a half million people. And it was, it was, it was third only to Alexandria and to Rome itself. And it was a city that was on the um, on Tortes River, Arantos River, and it, it was so it had commercial access. It was a, a a political state as well, and it was actually it was actually declared a free state in 46 BC. And so you had lots of, unlike today, you had lots of economic power coming in and lots of political influence, um, and it was filled with diverse ethnic culture, which. Makes sense why Antioch was so important, right? You had a large contingency of Jews in Antioch, and you had all these people from all over the world. He said, well, that's perfect for the gospel to go from Caesarea up to Antioch and now be preached to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And it's one of the reasons I think that Antioch had played such a big role throughout the history of the church. And then Luke tells us something we would expect. The Jewish Christians going up that far, look at the latter part of verse 1, they spoke the word to no one, except the Jews. Now, we gotta, be, we gotta be gracious, but prior to Cornelius and the Holy Spirit being poured out in Caesarea, the missional nature of the church was Jews go to other Jews. Go to the synagogue, preach the gospel of Jesus. If they don't like it, go to another synagogue, right? And so this is what they were doing. But some of the Hellenistic Jews, those who were from that era, either through the diaspora you know, earlier, they decided they were going to do what they heard was taking place in Caesarea, and they were going to preach Lord of all to the Gentiles. Look at verse 20. There were some of them that these are those who fled Jerusalem after Stephen's execution. Some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, so it's their hometown, it's their backyard, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that's a fancy way of saying Greeks also, preaching who? The Lord Jesus, not Jesus the Messiah, not Jesus the Jewish Savior, preaching the Lord Jesus. And so they very likely had heard about what happened in Caesarea and Peter and Cornelius. They heard the declaration to the Jerusalem church that to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so they too started preaching the gospel to Gentiles. And you know what? God saved many. God saved many through the proclamation of these men. In fact, Luke tells us in the latter part of verse 20, they were preaching the Lord Jesus. That literally in the Greek, it says they were proclaiming the gospel or the good news of the kurion, the kurios, Jesus. That means Lord. And so they were using terms that every, 
Every, every Greek was religious, right? They had some religion of some kind. And so they were using words like kurion and soter, Lord and Savior. Look at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And so what was the result of their obedience to the gospel going to the nations? Not just Jews preaching to other Jews, but Jews preaching to the Gentiles. God opened the doors up, right? He not only opened the doors for them to preach the gospel to those who had never heard it, those who had no affiliation with Abraham or the promises of God, he opened up the doors of the hearts of the Gentiles so they would hear the gospel, they would repent, they would believe, and they'd be added to the church. In other words, we're seeing this embracing of the full revelation of God. Jesus said clearly, beginning of Acts, we did this, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it's a thesis verse for the entire book. He said to the apostles, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, you finish it, and to the end of the earth. That's what Christ said. That's the mission, and that was the expectation. That's the full revelation of God, my beloved. Genesis chapter 3, the promise was redemption for mankind. Read through the Old Testament prophets. Again and again, they talk about the gospel going to the nations, not just Jerusalem, not just Jews, not just Israel. And so these Jews who were only sharing the gospel with other Jews, they were embracing a partial revelation. They had some truth, but not all truth especially following the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Caesarea and the fact that God was blessing those there. In fact, Jesus commands the disciples in the Great Commission itself. Listen to this. You know this. Mark chapter 28. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. Then he said in verse 20, teaching them to observe what? All that I have commanded you. In other words, the Great Commission is founded upon Jesus saying, Go teach them to obey all that I've commanded. Not some of what I commanded. Not partial obedience. Not partial revelation. But everything that God has revealed, we are to study, to know, and submit ourselves to. Observing all that God has commanded. And beloved, that's, that's true submission. That's true biblical submission. Coming under God's mission for your life, not your mission for your life. Right? Everybody's on a mission. Everybody's doing something. The question is, whose mission are you on? Is it God's or is it yours? Is it you coming under Christ, submitting to his rule and his lordship and his goodness, and then walking as a disciple of his? Or are you still holding on to your things, your plans, your dreams? And if you are, say, no, I've got, I've got a foot in both camps. I'm doing a little bit of God and a little bit of me. Let me tell you something. That's all you. That's all you. Partial obedience is no obedience. Because as soon as you begin picking and choosing what you're going to obey God on and what you're not, you've made yourself Lord, right? If he is Lord, it's all that he commands we are to submit to. And so by their sharing the gospel only with Jews was partial submission to partial revelation. Um, Placing ourselves in the right place, which is under Christ, is where we're supposed to be. So what does that mean for the professing Christian today? What does it mean for you? It means that we cannot, you cannot be satisfied knowing what God has called you to do and knowingly not doing it. That's partial obedience. That's Jews preaching to Jews only even even though they know it's to go to the gospel, to the Gentiles. Each day we are called to place ourselves under the lordship of Jesus Christ, who is king 
And if he's king and he's seated upon his throne and we are citizens of his kingdom, then we are called and we should desire to do his will in all of our life, not just part. Now, it was very likely much more comfortable for Jews to go to synagogues and preach Jesus. Now, they were persecuted, but it was a synagogue. They knew the synagogue. They knew the people. They knew the language. Much harder to go out and say, we're going to move beyond the synagogue and we're going to talk to these these Gentiles who for centuries we thought were so unclean we can't even associate with them, let alone bring the gospel of grace to them. Full submission for us would obviously include you preaching the gospel to everybody in your mission field and not saying, I'm only going to preach it to a select group of people. Right? That's, that's obvious from this text. But at a much more fundamental level, and I, and I hope that the text can, can bear this out, Growing in our submission to God means growing in every area of our life. Every area. Now I want you to think of the one right now that just popped up into your mind thinking, oh, I haven't submitted that yet. Not yet. No, I haven't submitted that one either. It means, my beloved, some simple things. You won't read your Bible and never pray. Right? That's partial revelation. It means that you won't attend church faithfully and never serve in the church, right? That's partial revelation. It means that you won't strive for personal holiness but not be concerned about the holiness of the community, of the body of believers. It means, my beloved, that you won't pray for purity and then find yourself in a movie theater on Friday night watching a movie that Christ would hate, right? It means that if you're faithful at work and not faithful in kingdom work, it's partial obedience. God tells us to work hard, and he tells us to work hard in the kingdom. It means you will not be okay being discipled and never discipling. Always eating but never feeding. It means, my beloved, that declaring your love for God and your love for God's people and then forsaking the church for foolish reasons is partial revelation. Right? I mean, over and over again, we're called to totally submit to the knowledge and will of God. Now, there are times when we're not submitting because we don't know. But I would argue that for most of us, especially as we're older, it's vincible ignorance. We don't know because we don't want to know. Or we know, but we don't want to submit. We want to be like those Jews from Cyprus and Cyrene. They were so encouraged that they embraced the full revelation of God and they marched their way north and when their brothers were going to the synagogues, they went out in the streets and they went out to the courts and they declared Jesus Christ as Lord. And you know what happened? God blessed them. It says that God's hand was upon them. Why was it upon them? They were submitting to the full revelation and full counsel of God. They believed and they repented Many, we're told, a great number turn to the Lord. And so first I pray that we see we are to grow in submission. We're all to grow in submission daily. For you saying, what is it in my life right now? What is it in my life this morning that I am willfully not submitting to God on? Repent of that. Saying, don't get discouraged. Repent of it and then walk in faith. Where do you have that, that bivocation that ought not exist? You know what you ought to do and you do not do it and you continue to do that week after week and year after year. God is a gracious and patient God but at some point in time as a good father he's going to discipline you because he loves you. So number one, we're to grow in submission. Number two, 
We are to grow in ministry. Look at verse 22 with me. Awfully quiet in here. Uh, You're just listening intently, right? I mean, you're just so engaged. That's it. Okay, verse 22. The report is this. The report of this, the report of the Gentile, Gentiles in Antioch hearing the gospel and being saved. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So this is, this is very similar to what happened with Philip in Samaria. Remember, Philip says, hey, many of the Samaritans are coming to saving grace in Christ. And so the church says to Peter and John, get up there and figure out what's going on. That was before Caesarea, so um, a lot of tension there in the early church. They get a report that a great number of Gentiles had believed and turned to the Lord. And so they send Barnabas. Now Barnabas is a Cyprian from the island of Cyprus, and they send him likely for a couple reasons. One, he knows the area. He knows the people, right? He's going to be the perfect bridge between the Jewish church and the Gentile church. And in light of how significant the church in Antioch becomes for centuries, it was appropriate that Barnabas would be there to start it off. But we're also told, look at verse 24, that they send Barnabas because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. In other words, this is the kind of guy you'd want to send. We already know his reputation back in Acts chapter 4. Remember, he was noted for the almsgiving, for being generous with his offering, selling property and giving it to those in need. And then we also, if you remember, we, we uh, came across Barnabas back in Acts chapter 9 when he was the only one who took Saul of Tarsus, Paul, and brought him before the apostles and said, oh, by the way, you want to meet this guy. He's an apostle too. So we already know him. We know that he is the guy to be sent full of the Holy Spirit and faith. In other words, he was going to be someone that wasn't going to let his Jewishness get in the way. He was going to say, I'm a Jew, but I'm seeing God do work in Gentiles too. And so he was sent there for two primary reasons. One, to determine, is it a work of God, right? Throughout human history, we've had lots of false works of God. He wanted to say, is it a work of God? And number two, if it was a work of God, then he was there to promote and encourage the movement. Right? Barnabas means encourager, and he was there to encourage the work that God was already doing. So he doesn't go there to determine the right of Gentiles to come into the church. That had already been determined in Caesarea with Cornelius and then Peter and his testimony for the church. So he doesn't go there for that. He goes to encourage them in fact, I would say even further, he goes out to promote unity, right? He, he wants, he needs, the church needs the Jewish and the Gentile believers truly being one in the context of the church. Now, from the point of Pentecost up to really Caesarea and then now Antioch, um, it was all Jewish. It was all Jewish for centuries, right? Promises were made to Abraham and his descendants, Gentiles were excluded. But from this point on, you got to know something. From this point on, the redemptive plan, and we're going to see it certainly in the book of Acts, that shift is now going to the Gentiles. In other words, the Gentile mission and Gentiles being saved becomes center stage until Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then Jews will be drawn back in again. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. But this Gentile mission would be so extraordinary, and you are actually proof of that today that for centuries the number of Gentiles coming into the church has dwarfed those Jews who have repented and believed. So this is a this is a major transformation of identity in the church from a predominantly Jewish population to a few Gentiles coming in to swinging now to a Gentile church with a very few number of Jewish believers. And so there was a necessity for unity. Look at verse 23. 
When he, Barnabas, came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And so um, Barnabas was likely present when Jesus, when Jesus, when Peter gave his testimony in Jerusalem. And so he thought, oh, this is, this is fantastic. So he goes up there. He sees the grace of God poured out how? Gentiles being saved. I mean, they're engaged in really wicked and evil pagan worship in the Roman world. And they're brought out of that and they're saved by grace and they're brought into the kingdom and they're able to worship the one true living God, Yahweh. And so Barnabas, he praises God for it. He's so excited about it. But he also knows that a good start doesn't mean a good finish. He knows that. And so um, he's going to give them some counsel here. He's going to exhort them or encourage them. And we know that too, my beloved. Many Many come into the church and have for centuries. They'll come into the church, they'll hear the gospel, they'll make a profession, they'll get baptized, and they'll be added to the role, and then they disappear. Right? And that's happened. That's not new to our time. I know we hear about it, you know, Silicon Valley and transiency. That's the history of the church. And so Barnabas knows that too, and so he exhorts them. Look at the latter part of verse 23. Barnabas the encourager, he encouraged them and says, Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. I think the NIV is a better translation of this. It says, remain true to the Lord with all your heart. All your heart. Set your whole life on Christ. Right? Truly make him Lord. And then follow him all your days. Be committed to know him, to love him, to worship him, to listen to him, to obey him. And what I love about Barnabas is he's not just a man of words. He doesn't just encourage them. He actually works to this end. Look at verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Right, the, the church is exploding in Antioch. I mean, literally thousands are coming to a saving grace. And Barnabas is like, I, I need help. I need some, some workers here. And so he not only encouraged them to, to remain steadfast in the Lord, he goes and gets a worker that he's going to work with for a full year to do that ministry. So he goes to Tarsus. We know Tar- Paul's been up there. It's, Tarsus is about, from Antioch, about 60 miles northwest of Antioch, so it's not too far. He goes, he knows he's there, he goes and he gets him, and then look at the latter part of verse 26. For a whole year, they, Barnabas and Saul, met with the church and taught a great many people. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That's a little, a little side that Luke throws in there. He's an historian. He likes that information. Um, we hear that title and we think, yes, Christian. Well, it was given to them by those who hated Christ. It was actually a, a derogatory term. The church, actually, they like to be identified as, as believers, as followers, as disciples. My favorite was as brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's, that was their title. But Christian stuck, and hence we, we have it today. Um, but Luke tells us that Barnabas and Paul, they worked together for an entire year. You talk about, you talk about an all-star team. Right? Barnabas and Paul come to Antioch and they're going to minister there to ensure that church thrives. And so we're talking here, we're talking about eight or nine years after Paul left Jerusalem and went up to Tarsus. So some time has passed, significant time has passed. And we're probably, we're probably right around 43, 44 AD, so about 10 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. First decade. What's so extraordinary to me, in the first 10 years of the church, what we're seeing here is what Jesus had promised back in John chapter 10. Remember Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's talking about the Gentiles. He said, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there'll be one flock and one shepherd. 
So the Gentile believers in Antioch, they are representing that, that other fold that Jesus was talking about. And the gospel came, and lo and behold, they listened to Jesus' voice, and they would be added to the new flock. The one flock, one shepherd, one flock of sheep. And so Barnabas calls Paul to help support and grow this ministry. And look at what they did. Look at the latter part of verse 26 again. They met with the church, and they taught a great many people. Now, that's, it's, you can read right by that, but it's a great missional strategy. They did two things. They made sure that the church grew healthy. They ministered to the members of the church inside the church. And they, they and the church proclaimed the gospel to the lost. They were inside and outside. They met with the church and they taught a great many people, presumably outside the church. Um, the reason this is so extraordinary is because it's so early. Right? They did not become an inwardly turned church. They did. They, they, Paul and Barnabas understood that if this mission was going to be successful, the, the members of the body of Christ in Antioch had to grow in their faith. And so they preached the word of God. They taught them. They prayed together. They taught them how to love one another, how to minister to one another, how to care for each other's needs. And at the same time, they realized a healthy church will go out and do the work of the evangelist. They will share the gospel with the lost. So all the lost sheep that are out there that Christ has called to be redeemed will hear the gospel, they will repent, and they will believe too. And so we see this very early, within the first 10 years of the church, this missional strategy, which should be the strategy for us as well. Right? A healthy church should be a church that wants to grow its members deep in the faith. Right? Through preaching like this and through teaching and through prayer time together and discipleship and community groups and all the things that we want you to do to grow in the faith. At the same time, we don't want to lose focus on the mission to the lost, right? And so in the Western church, what we've seen over the last several decades actually is a perversion one way or the other, right? Churches become so focused on growing up the saints that they forget the mission field right outside the doors, right? They get inward bent. Then you have other churches today, some of the bigger churches. It's all about sharing the gospel and getting them in, but once they're in, there's no spiritual maturation or growth, a healthy church, which I pray we want to be a healthy church, is doing both. We want to grow internally and we want to share the gospel externally. We want to be inside and outside at the exact same time. So what does that require? Shocking every single one of you. Right? This is a ton of work if you think about it. If the, if the church is, is to be serious about growing its members inside and sharing the gospel, making disciples outside, then certainly that would require every single member of a church, right? And you have been actually gifted to that exact end. God has brought you and he's saved you and he's equipped you to do this exact kingdom work, to do the work of the church, which is growing the saints and making disciples outside the church. Did you notice in verse 23 when Barnabas exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose? You know that's a call to. That's a call inside the church. He's saying, church, make sure that you guys all make it to the end. Make sure you watch out for your brothers and sisters in the faith. They don't get lost. He's calling them to persevere together and that's the mutual watch care. If you remember from Hebrews chapter three, remember the exhortation? Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Then he says this, exhort one another, how often? Every day. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So every single member 
is to work hard, to pray for, to encourage, to rebuke if necessary, and to teach other members of the body to grow this place. And at the same time, see how much work there is? You think, that's, that's overwhelming alone. Just with our church, how do we do that? That is, it's a lot of work. And we have to be out there as well. We have to be working to make sure that those who do not know Christ at least hear the gospel, that they might repent and they might be saved. Outside the church, my beloved, we want to, I want to, I want us to have the eyes of Christ. I mean, he had, he had such a compassionate heart for the lost. Do you remember in, in the Gospel of Matthew as he was coming upon Jerusalem and he, um, he looks upon those, he's proclaiming the Gospel and he's healing the sick and he looks upon this crowd. This is what Matthew writes. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Christ was broken over the lost world. He came to seek and save the lost. And then he saves us to do what? To, to go harvest, right? And we are, oh, are we in a, a field today? We are in a field in this place with so many lost souls Many of whom, my beloved, in, you know, in San Jose proper, um, so many who have never, they've never ever heard the gospel. They've never heard it. They, they haven't rejected it because they haven't heard it. Now that's in a, you say, how, how's that possible? We have, you know, online books and, and you can get podcasts everywhere. How's it possible? Well, the place that we live in is the most unchurched, de-churched place in the country, right? So great opportunities for us to be faithful in growing one another and sharing the gospel outside the church. So much work to be done. So much work to be done. Um, all right. We're to grow in submission. We're to grow in ministry. I'm going to give you one more, whether you like it or not. Growing in giving. You say, well, I don't like this one already. Dr. Luke closes chapter 11. He closes it with a prophecy, a need, and a response. And it's truly beautiful. Look at verse 27. Now in these days, and he's talking about the time of Paul and Barnabas ministering in Antioch. In these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. So b- back then, prophets in the early church were still acting and exercising an Old Testament type of prophecy where they were actually revealing spe- specific things that were going to be happening. Uh, Agabus, we're going to find out from here. He's, we're going to meet him again in Acts 21 where he tells Paul, oh, by the way, you're going to be arrested in Jerusalem and you're going to be handed over to the Gentiles. So he's going to reappear. But here he gives us a prophecy about famine. Look at verse 28. One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. That's all the known world at the time. And this took place in the days of Claudius. Um, So the Holy Spirit reveals that things are going to get very difficult for a lot of people in a lot of countries. Now, famines were, were relatively common then, much more so than they are today. But the prophet, God speaks to the prophet to notify the church of this because it's going to be a more severe and prolonged famine than normal and it's going to have a direct impact on the church in Jerusalem. And so that's the reason that the word comes to the church in Antioch. And it comes at a time during the reign of Claudius. Claudius reigned from 41 to 54 AD um, and (laughs) his reign was known for having lots of famines. So this wasn't strange, but this particular famine, it hit Rome, Egypt, Greece, and hit Judea particularly hard. So this is what happened. Look at verse 29. 
So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And this, my beloved, remember Barnabas shows up and he sees grace. He sees God's grace. And it was, it was more than just God saving Gentiles. He sees the love of Christ poured out in their lives so much so that they're going to love Jews. You say, what's, what's the big deal with that? This is truly an other-centered love, right? The famine was also coming to them. Gentiles and Jews generally did not get along. Uh, and for many of them, they actually hated each other. And yet here they come to a saving grace. They're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They have the love of Christ. And what are they going to do? They hear about a famine and they go around each one. Each one participated. And they collected money to send it to a church 460 miles away. To a people that were not their people. They were Jews, not Gentiles. To a people who spoke a different language and for centuries hated them and said they were cursed by God. And yet what do they do? They gather probably thousands of dollars and they collect it as a love offering, and they send it off to people they once hated. And they give it to Paul and Barnabas to be faithful, um, faithful ministers of that, make sure it got there safely. Um, I, I asked myself why, why it's, it's a really kind of a strange place for the prophecy and then the act of giving. It's not like that wasn't happening um, and certainly in the early church. So I said, well, what, why, why this prophet from Agabus and why this gift giving? Two main reasons. Number one, Dr. Luke is excellent about tracing the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And so Paul and Barnabas, they get together in Antioch. Together they go down to Jerusalem to bring this offering. They run into John Mark. They grab John Mark and say, you're coming back to Antioch with us. They go back to Antioch, and then the church in Antioch commissions them to go out on their first missionary journey, the first official missionary journey sanctioned by the church, which we're going to get to in a few weeks. So I, I think that, in part, Luke wants us to have a, a good chronology of the, the life of the Apostle Paul. But the second reason, I think the most important reason, is Luke wants to reveal the radical unity that already existed in the early church. Radical unity. It took, listen, it only took months for God through the gospel and love of Christ to overcome centuries of enmity between Jew and Gentile. Months. So much so that they're gathering money and they're sending it away. In other words, Luke wants us to see that very early in this movement to the Gentiles that there was going to be one church and one spirit, and one Lord. Not two churches, Jew and Gentile, as we talked about a few weeks ago. God hates how fragmented the church is even today. But one church, as displayed here in the giving, this love offering to Gentiles, so, Jews so far away. Um, Paul will later write in Galatians 3, and I think this is being borne out in the offering that was made Paul writes, Galatians 3, For in Christ Jesus you all are sons of God through faith. There is neither Jew, you know this, Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So he said, no more division. No more dividing line. And the fact that they would send this amount of money to Jews so far away actually revealed that. So up to this point in time, Largely Jewish church, Gentiles come in and what do they do? They put on display the love of God for everybody in the church to see, all right, we are going to love each other like brothers and to put on for the world to see. I mean, it was probably amazing for Jews to receive this gift, thinking, who are these, it's from who? The Gentiles in Antioch? Oh, we were talking bad about them two weeks ago. 
And now we have money from them because they don't want us to what? Starve to death. They didn't want to starve to death. But what, what a testimony outside the church. I mean, this just doesn't, it doesn't happen today. It certainly did not happen in the first century. Cultures did not cross like that. Different language, different culture, they did not share like that. They did inside the families and maybe in the broader community, but you wouldn't have Jews giving to Gentiles and Gentiles giving to Jews, but it's happening in the context of the gospel. How extreme is this giving? The Apology of Aristides, he, he wrote a letter to um, Emperor Hadrian. This is early part of the second century. And he's commenting as an outsider of the love he sees inside the church. Listen to this. He says, these Christians, using it in a derogatory fashion, these Christians, he says, O king, they know and trust in God, the creator of heaven and of earth. And they love one another. Listen to this. They do not turn away their widows and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. He who has, speaking of the church, he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him in their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, listen to this, they fast for two or three days in order to supply the need of the lack of food. Imagine that. You say, I'm going to fast for three days and I'm going to take that food and I'm going to give it to you so that you don't starve to death. My beloved, what happened here is that the church in Antioch, their hearts were so captivated by the love of God in Christ that their hearts loved others too, just as Christ loves them. And it flowed in their love offering. When Jesus came from heaven to earth, he didn't come merely to heal the sick and give sight to the blind. He came, my beloved, to fully submit to the total will of God, right? When he came, he came in order that he might ascend the cross because that's why God sent him, that he might ascend the cross as God ordained and in so doing give you and me, sinners destined for judgment, life. Life now and life eternal. He came to fully submit to the full law of God so that sinners like us who submit to the partial law all the time can be forgiven by grace through faith and brought in as those who are truly faithful. His faithfulness is given to us freely. He came to minister to his church, to be the head of his church. He came to bring the gospel to the lost. He is the perfect representative of the body of Christ. And he came, my beloved, he came, if you know Christ, he came for you specifically by name because he knows, remember he was truly God and truly man, he knows the deprivation. He saw with his own eyes, he experienced in relationships that he had how truly our souls are stricken with spiritual famine, how desperate and needy we are. That deep, you know what I'm talking about, that that deep hunger that you cannot fill. You tried it, you try it with money, you try it with sex, you take food, entertainment, or people. You can't quench it because it can only be satisfied by God himself. That is the famine. That is the spiritual famine that is a result of our fall. And only Jesus Christ can quench that. And he did so by ascending the cross and having his body broken and his blood spilled to bring to you that relief that comes that spiritual food. 
Um, he is the greatest gift. And the gift that the church in Antioch gave to the Jews, and fantastic. But this is the gift. This is the gift of the Father to sinful man, and it's his own son. It's his own son that he might overcome through his death and resurrection our own spiritual famine and then bring us what? You say, we always say bring us eternal life, but that's eternal life now. Eternal life, real life, refreshing life, not every day struggling just to eke out an existence, a joy-filled life, a purposeful life. Christ died to overcome that spiritual famine in your heart and mind and replace it with his joy and his peace and his spirit. So your key to this growth, it's the God-man, Jesus Christ. It's him. You say, I want to grow. I want to grow in my submission to God. I want to grow in the ministry. I want to be more active here. I want to be more active out there. I want to grow in giving. I do, and I know you do. Well, the answer to that is Christ himself. It's not you going, oh, I got to try harder. That's religion. That doesn't work ever. It's you, what? Abiding in him. That's why we started off with that. How do you bear much fruit? Well, if he's the vine and you are the branch, you abide in him and you will bear much fruit. You'll do just that. It means seeing him for who he truly is. I mean, he is the darling of heaven. He is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure in the field. That's Christ. It's him. He is beautiful and majestic and he was the one that gave his life as a sacrifice for you. That's how much he loves you. This beautiful, majestic son of God gave his life to bring you in and bring you all the way in. And the more you see him and the more you love him and the more you rejoice in the work he did on your behalf, you know what? The more you'll want to grow. The more you'll want to grow. You'll also grow and you'll have a desire to grow. In other words, you'll become much more intentional. And I think that, I'm gonna close, that's one of the big struggles we have today. We're not intentional about it. We say, I wanna grow. What are you gonna do? Nothing. Well, you're not going to grow. Right? I mean, if you, if you want to lose weight, you've got to exercise and go on a diet. If you don't do that, you're probably not going to lose weight. But right? I said, I, I want to grow in this area in my mind. I want to, I want to, learn. I want to learn about you know, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. But if you're not going to study it, how are you going to grow deeper? Every aspect of our life, we feed our children, right? So they grow physically. So if you're not intentional about growth, you shouldn't expect to grow. But if you are intentional about growth, that's submitting to God's will because he wants you to grow as well. So how, how will you be intentional about submitting to the word of God? Well, you gotta know it. So that means you're gonna study it. You're gonna read your Bible. You're gonna come to a Sunday morning service and by God's grace learn something. And then you're gonna say, I'm going to try in the power of the spirit to actually do this. Not just hear and not be a doer, but hear and do. That's how we submit. You say, well, what about ministry? I wanna, I wanna grow in my ministry too. Well. You have all, and this church, I'm always amazed, this church is radically gifted. Radically gifted. You have gifts and talents and resources to bless this body, to grow this body, your brothers and sisters in the faith. And God has equipped you to impact those outside the church. Right, but we must be intentional about using those gifts and talents. You say, and I wanna grow in giving. Well, ask yourself, what kind of a steward are you? How do you steward your money? How do you steward your time? How do you steward all the gifts that you have that you might bless those who are experiencing a sort of famine right now, a physical famine or a spiritual famine or emotional famine? My beloved, this is, this is the desire that God has for you. This is the power that you have in Christ. So the only question I think that's really for us today as we close is are, are you 
Are you growing in the Lord? Are you? That's, that's a yes or a no. I'm not asking the rate at which you're growing. I'm asking, are you growing in the Lord? And, and if it's not a yes, then, then today repent of that sin and, and ask God to forgive you and then give you the desire and the commitment to grow in faith. And if you are growing, well, praise God for that. And then ask as Paul did. Be greedy. Say, God, I want to grow more. I want to grow deeper. I want to grow faster. Lord, do that work in my life. And you know what? He will answer that because he desires that for you too. He desires for each of us day by day to be more and more as Christ is so that when you see him face to face, you will become as he is. So I'm going to ask God right now, and then we'll take you. I'm going to ask God. I'm going to ask a big prayer. I'm going to ask him to grow us radically in the supernatural power of the Spirit. That we will, we will right now be different than we were an hour ago as a church. All right, pray with me. Father, help us to see that spiritual growth is supposed to be normal for us. That we're not supposed to come to a saving grace and just sit. That we're not saved and brought into a church body to do nothing. I pray instead, Father, you would show us clearly that in being saved and brought in, you have equipped us with the power of the third person of the Holy Triune God, the Holy Spirit himself. And therefore, all the growth that you have decreed for us, we can do. So I, I pray, Lord, that we would desire to submit to the full revelation that we have in your word. I pray that each of us would ask ourselves tonight, as we pray before we sleep tonight, what ministry am I doing What can I do? What have you equipped me to do? And then, Lord, tomorrow, this week, move me into that work. Move me into the work that you ordained for me to do, Ephesians 2.10, before the foundations of the world. And, Father, I, I pray as well that you would make us generous. Make us generous with our money, with our time, with our resources, with our relationships. Make us generous as a people that this world might be caught off guard too and see the love here and not understand it. Father, make our lives a living testimony to the goodness of of your son, Jesus Christ. I ask that you would do that, Lord, that, that you would bless us because these, these are all good things for your church. I pray that you would do it also, Lord, that we might be the most brilliant testimony to Cambrian Park. That's where you have this lampstand, that we might see many hear the gospel and come to a saving grace. And, and I ask it as always, Lord, first and foremost and utmost for your glory. You are worthy of this, Father. You're worthy of our living a life worthy of Christ. And so make that come to pass by your spirit, I pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen.